Uh, if you've got a Bible, go to um, Luke 15. We're going to be in Luke 15 today. If you're new with us today, we love that you're here. We don't believe you're here by accident. Um, I like that. Um, we believe you're here because the Lord wants you here, whether watching or here in person, being able to hear the word and be encouraged in it. Luke 15 is one of my, my favorite chapters of Scripture. Uh, I love that we're looking at it today. I believe it's going to be encouragement to those of us, either uh, those of us who are Christ followers or those of us yet to trust in Jesus. He gives us three parables in this chapter, parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, and then parable of the lost son. And parables teach. They illustrate biblical truth. And so I want to read through Luke 15 and look through it and, and talk through it and then get, get, us, get us a sense of the three parables and what they're teaching us. And then I want to come back to looking at, all right, what do they teach us about three specific things? What do they teach us about Father God? What do they teach us about repentance? And what do they teach us? Uh, what do these parables teach us about us? So let's jump in. Let's enjoy the teaching of Jesus here. Luke uh, right starting in verse 1 in the CSB translation. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The religious leaders are complaining that Jesus is eating with and welcoming sinners to his table. How can this holy man eat dinner with unholy people? Because to these people, these leaders, sinners, were people who had forsaken any shot at a relationship with God because of their sin and their lifestyles. And yet here is Jesus Christ welcoming them, eating with them, and, and they are moving toward Jesus. These Pharisees and scribes would never do this because they're working under this false teaching, works-based gospel premise of a person has to clean up their, their life outwardly first and then, and only then, can they come toward the Lord. Kind of, you, you clean up, you shower up, you hide the sin better, and then, and then, maybe, you can come toward the Lord in fellowship. But here, Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them, eats with the people who are still far from him, those who are not trusting in him yet, those who are not following him yet. And don't miss this, the people that are far from the Lord, people like you and me, apart from Christ, before they met and trusted in Jesus, people like that, they want to hang out with Christ who is perfectly holy and good, unstained by sin in any way. And so Jesus moves into three parables that, that address these complaints of the leaders saying, well, why does this man eating with sinners and tax collectors and, and, and unholy people? So it addresses those complaints, but it also teaches the crowds who are listening. In verse 3, so he told them, this parable, and the first one is the parable of the lost sheep. And in this parable, the Lord is the good shepherd, and we are the lost being pursued. Jesus says, What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. A shepherd is trying to account for all his sheep, and one is missing. And it's obvious to the listener in this context, where shepherding is all around, that any good shepherd, 
is going to go after that lost one. And a hundred sheep is a modest size flock. Three hundred is a large flock in that day. And so, so this lost sheep has value. It has worth. This lost sheep is worth finding and pursuing. And typically the shepherd doesn't leave the 99 without someone to stay there and protect them. They would have left the 99 in the care of another so that they could focus on the lost one. And the shepherd is going to look until this lost sheep has been found and located. And the shepherd going out doesn't know if the sheep will be will be dead, will be wandering away, will be stolen, will it be alive? But here we see that the search proves fruitful. The lost sheep receives intentional care until it is safe and sound, joyfully putting it on his shoulders. The sheep could have been lost or stolen or killed, but it has been found. And what's the result? Joy. Joy. Joy is all through this chapter. I hope you see that as we work through it. And joy doesn't just stay with the shepherd, he calls his friends and his neighbors. Verse 6 says, saying, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. And then verse, uh, verse 7 says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. 99 righteous people who don't need repentance, meaning 99 people who are so self-righteous and arrogant that they miss, that they too have fallen short of the glory of God, and they too are in need of repentance. The people of heaven rejoice when sinners who are lost have been found. So, brother and sister in the Lord, when you got saved, whether it was last week, three weeks ago, 50 years ago, do you know what happened? Happened? Heaven went ballistic with joy because you repented, because you trusted not in yourself, but trusted in Christ. Heaven rejoiced. A celebration occurred. Jesus goes on, verse 8 now, giving the parable of the lost coin. We'll see similar themes here. Jesus says, Or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I found the lost coin I lost, or found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Coins were not circular, so they couldn't get very far. And yet this coin is lost. It leads to a deliberate search, lighting the lamp, sweeping the corners, checking under the couch, couch cushions, turning the couch upside down, whatever it takes. And the shepherd who is pursuing the lost sheep was moved by compassion and love. That sheep will die otherwise. It needs to be found. The woman with the lost coin is moved not by compassion for a piece of silver, but rather moved with this belief that this coin has value. This coin isn't meaningless. This, this coin is worth something. And what happens when the coin has been found? Again, collective rejoicing with friends and neighbors over what is a very modest amount of money. But even that modest amount has value. It's worth finding. It's worth searching for. And then verse 11, through the end of this chapter, Jesus gives the final of these three parables, the parable of the lost or prodigal son. But it's, it's probably better titled, and maybe your translation might say this, it's better titled the, the parable of the two sons or the two brothers. 
Because this parable is so much more than just about the prodigal. The, the father is the story. Father in the story is an illustrated picture of God the Father. And we see in powerful display how the father responds to both sons. Both sons who are desperately in need of God's grace. Verse 11, Jesus also said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. The the younger son is saying, in other words, I don't want a relationship with you, Father. I don't care about you. You might as well be dead to me because I want to get my inheritance then. Give me what is coming to me now. I want to do what I want to do. I want to be in control. I want freedom. And he's under this this short-sighted belief that greater freedom is found apart from the Father. Apart from the Father's care and love. So what does the Father do? Verse 12. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, verse 13, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. He takes all the inheritance, converts it to cash, and takes off, travels far away, thinking again, falsely, freedom is found out there. Freedom is found apart from the Father. The idea of squandering means just tossing it into the wind. It's wild life. It blows through it, through the pleasures of this world. And it's fleeting. It's unsatisfying in the end. And then on top of that, external hardship is coming to the son, verse 14, after he had spent everything, squandered all of it. A severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. The younger brother's world is collapsing here. No family, no money, suffering is his. He is in trouble, he is in poverty. Verse 15, then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. The younger brother is a Jew. So to hang out with pigs who are unclean, tending to pigs, this is dishonorable to say the least. This is the lowest of the low kind of jobs that he can find. And he's still suffering in hunger satisfaction is still not his he incorrectly thought that independent life apart from the father was where satisfaction and real life was found and yet here he is and he's come to the end of himself have you come to the end of yourself before i can think of moments in my life where i came to the end of myself some of you are there today and i pray that you would run back to the father today verse 17 when he came to his senses He said, how many of my father's hired hands or hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. Light has dawned in his heart and life. He's come to his senses amidst the pigs and their slop He's thinking back to life in the father's house and even the hired workers of the father had it better off than he does right here. Repentance is happening and it's leading to faith-filled actions. He's practicing what he's going to say when he goes to see his father. And what you see here and as he's thinking about what he's going to say to his dad, what you hear is humility. 
I'm going to come under your authority. I've sinned against you. I was wrong. And the prodigal realizes that he brings nothing in the midst of repentance. No excuses, no justifications for his foolish choices. Simply humility. The rebellious son is completely dependent upon the mercy and the compassion of the father. The father has all authority in this moment. The younger son has none. So how will the father respond? Verse 20. So he, the prodigal, got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The son was still a long way off and the father initiates. The father runs toward the son, hugs him, kisses him with affection, compassion and love of the father. And what will the, do, what will the father do in this moment? What will he say to the prodigal son that he thought was dead and is now alive? What will he say to the humble confession of the prodigal? Verse 22, But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Repentance has taken place and restoration follows. He has come home dirty and beaten up from the world, humbled, humiliated, and the father receives the son with great joy. Again, the collective rejoicing of the repentance of someone who has worth, who has value, who is lost and is now found. The father is lavish toward the son. Generous, holds nothing back. Meat was rarely consumed. And so this is a special moment. He was covered in in pig slop and now he's covered in robes and rings. All of which give a symbol or a picture of being identified with the father. He's not going to be treated like a hired hand, but as a son who the father loves. He will not have to work his way into the father's graces, but he's going to be met with grace upon grace and celebration results. Now the scene shifts away from the younger brother and onto the older one, onto this older son. Tim Keller wrote a great book called The Prodigal God. Or prodigal God, actually. It's not, I don't think it has the word the in front of it, but it would be a great read for you. It expands upon this parable. I think it would be an encouragement to you. But verse 25 says, Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he summoned one of his servants, questioning what these things meant. So there's a party going on. What, what, what can this be for? And the servant says, Your brother's here, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he... He has him back safe and sound. I'm sure the older brother is just rejoicing that his younger brother is alive. Not so much. Verse 28. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him, but he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I've I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. I know you students are really asking your parents for a goat to celebrate with. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf 
for him. The older son is claiming favoritism. I've been here all these years, and he says, slaving is the verb he uses. So not joyful obedience from the older son, but rather, I'm working, Father, so that you'll keep me in your house. I'm working, Father, so that you'll accept me. I'm working, Father, so that you'll receive me. And here's the ironic thing. The father comes out to plead with the older son to come in, join the celebration, don't stay outside, and yet the older son who claims he has always been obedient, is not obedient right here. He doesn't come in. The older son would never see himself as the the rebellious one. The older son points fingers and looks laterally and says, well, I'm far better off than my younger brother. But here he is, pointing fingers and rebelling against the father, remaining angry and proud and on the outside. The rebellion of the two sons just manifested itself in different ways. The younger son was loud and outward. The older son was quiet and proud and self-righteous. We are all in, in need of the grace and mercy of the Father. And loved ones, don't miss this. The Father initiates in both cases. The Father moves toward the younger son and toward the older one. The father speaks to the son, verse 31. Son, he said to him, you were always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. Again, he was lost and is found. Again, the father's pleading with the son, come in. This is a time to rejoice, not demand more justice. This is a time to celebrate. I love that the father uses this brother of yours reminding him of their relationship. And yet, the older brothers, unmoved by the younger brothers' repentance. Everyone is thrilled in the story. Everyone is thrilled in all three parables except for the older brother. Because this older brother is working under a, a works mentality, and, and when lavish grace is extended, it completely disrupts and dismantles this false gospel of works that we can be saved through our own effort. The older brother so focused on himself that he misses that his brother who is dead is now alive and he chooses to remain angry and on the outside. Parables teach. So what what do these parables teach us about the father, first of all? A.W. Tozer said, said famously that whatever comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Whatever comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so by God's grace, this parable, let alone the whole of Scripture, gives us a growing understanding of who the Father is and who our God is. So what do we learn about the Father? Well, he pursues the lost, both the rebellious and the self-righteous. He initiates, he pursues, and when he finds, he cares for, he protects. He is gentle, compassionate, He's not aloof. If you see God as aloof, then you're seeing him incorrectly. Allow the word of God to define who God is to you rather than you defining who God is. He's not lacking of emotion or love. He desires that, that they would come in and be, and be received and experience his love. The Father's not reluctant in saving people. I hope you see that. The Father has never begrudgingly saved someone and brought them into relationship with Him. 
What we learn in this parable is that it actually brings him great, great joy to see his created people turn back to him in repentance and in trust. He does not meet the humble repentance of a person with demands for more justice or a condemning attitude or arms crossed, let's see if this is legit, but rather arms open, grace upon grace. Because such lavish grace changes us. It moves us toward obedience. It moves us toward faithfulness. It moves us toward the Father and into a deeper relationship. It moves us away from self-centered living and that wants to either run off or stay outside. What do we learn about repentance? We talk a lot about repentance because the Bible talks about it a lot. In the Gospels, repent for the kingdom of God is near was the continual message, whether it was John the Baptist or Jesus. In the early church, it was repent and believe the good news. That message continues. Repent meaning to agree with the Lord, to choose to stop disagreeing with him and turn toward agreement, turn toward him. So what do these parables, specifically this last one, teach us about repentance? Well, we see that it begins inwardly. Verse 17 says, when the younger son came to his senses, it began in his mind, his heart, and then it led to faith-filled action. He got up and went, verse 20 says. It wasn't just a thought in his mind that kind of stayed there, but it actually led to change. It led to movement. It led for him to walk by faith. Inward repentance led to outward actions that looked differently. We also see that in repentance, we come empty-handed. We come humbly. We move toward the Father, not with excuses or justifications for our actions, but simply, I've sinned against you. And there, what we see is that we are met with mercy, compassion, forgiveness. Repentance leads to joy, both vertically and horizontal. Joy in heaven, but joy laterally with those around us. Last Sunday, when we celebrated baptisms, that's a collective, joyful moment for the church of God to say, Lord, you're changing lives. Praise be to you. There's a collective rejoicing in those moments. We also see that repentance led to relational restoration, the restoration of the son and father's relationship. How many of us have experienced that in our lives? My marriage has been restored at different times over 25 years because of repentance. My marriage has been strengthened because of repentance. Father-child relationship has been restored because of repentance. Co-worker relationships, brother-sister-Christ-in-Christ relationships within the church has been restored because of repentance. When a husband and wife are actively repenting, it leads to a posture, a place of repentance of restoration. Same thing with siblings, brothers and sisters. When there's a unified, repenting attitude, humble attitude, it's going to lead to restoration. We also see here that repentance is like a resurrection. Verse 24, the father says, his son of mine was dead and is now alive. He was in chains, enslaved to sin and the things of this world, but now he's come home, returned. He's walking as a new creation. We also see that all people are in need of repentance. All people. Not just the younger son, but the older sons. And the father is faithfully pursuing and welcoming home all who return to him. Finally, what do we learn about us? Jesus addresses two different 
types of people in this parable, people who are still lost and those who have been found. And in this gathering and watching online, there are still two groups of people, those who are lost and living apart from the Lord, still not trusting in him yet. And then another group that is trusting in Christ, seeking to follow him, grow to be like him. So first of all, what do we learn about the lost? Those of you who are not yet trusting in Jesus, we learn that you are worth searching for. You have value, you have worth, you were made in the image and likeness of God. You have been fearfully and wonderfully made, and the Lord is searching for you actively. He's pursuing you. You think you're here, you think you're watching by accident? This is the Father at work in your life. Another way the Bible says it is the Father's drawing you to himself. He has left the 99 to seek and save you, to save you from eternal destruction and separation, to give you new life in him, to give you freedom in him. The world and your spiritual enemy, the devil, loves to tell you otherwise, that you don't have value, you don't have worth, you don't have meaning. So let the words of Jesus here in the Gospel of Luke correct those false thoughts. Second thing I want us to see is that in these parables, what do they teach us about the lost is that we are born. When we are born, we tend to relate to God like either the younger brother or the older one. It's never just one or the other, but the needle of our hearts tends to relate to God as one or the other. The younger brother runs from the father often sees the grace of the Father as license to continue in sin. They diminish the holiness of the Father. Their rebellion is often outward. I don't really care if my my sin is seen or not. The older brother is constantly working, thinking this is how the Father is going to accept me. And the older brothers are resume builders. Here's all my spiritual activity, and here's all my morality, and here's all that I've avoided. And whereas younger brothers could care less, of what they've avoided. Older brothers tend to keep attention away from their sin by trying to shine light on on where they're getting it right. And again, we tend toward one or the other, or probably a mixture of both. What we see in this parable is that apart from repentance and before the prodigal returns home, neither brother is enjoying the father. Neither brother is enjoying relationship with him. The prodigal younger is in pig slop, the proud older is, quote-unquote, slaving away. And both are living in isolation. The younger brother runs off. The older one is unwilling to repent and come in from the outside because of his pride. So, loved ones, if the Spirit has revealed in your heart that you're still living and trusting in yourself or living apart from the Father this morning, turn toward him. Come in from the outside. Return from that far off land and be met with grace and mercy. What do we learn about the found people? Those of us who are in Christ in these parables. We learn that we are to reflect the Father, his compassion, his gentleness, his love. We have been commissioned to join him in his mission to seek and save that which is lost, to pray with intentionality to search with compassion, to share with boldness and love. And when repentance takes place, may we reflect the Father and celebrate with great joy because recovery leads to joy. Resurrection leads to joy. The lost being found, the dead in sin, experiencing new new life in Christ, that should lead us to a collective rejoicing and celebration. 
Because seeing lives changed by the gospel should never become ho-hum for a believer in Christ. When it becomes collectively ho-hum for a church, that church begins to die. It should never become that. Because the gospel is alive, the gospel is changing lives, the Lord is at work. We're praying that the gospel would sweep, the good news of Jesus Christ would sweep through communities and people groups and households and generations. May we reflect the Father when we see those closest to us repent and walk away from the pig slop. Walk away from the cold, bitter balconies. When we see loved ones and friends repent, may we meet them like the Father did with overflowing affection and love. Consider how wronged the father had been by the younger son. The last words he heard was, just go ahead and die. I'm out of here. How wronged the father had been. And the father runs toward him in an attitude of joy rather than demanding more justice. May the people of God reject allowing a bitter, self-righteous root to grow that demands for more work to be done to forgive sin when loved ones, the work is complete on the cross. Is there someone in your life, a spouse, a child, a parent, a coworker, a boss, that you are demanding more justice from rather than meeting them with grace, grace that changes, grace that doesn't, grace that changes, grace that transforms. Grace that leads us toward a growing faithfulness. Jesus accomplished the work so that we might repent from isolation and find relationship with the Father, community with the family of God. Jesus went to the cross and rose again on the third day so that we might cease from the mentality of either running from the Father or slaving for the Father and rather return to enjoying the Father in relationship enjoying his goodness, his grace that continues to heal, continues to change and transform. If the worship team could come back up. We're going to sing, uh, we're going to sing just one last song here at the end. Um, during this last song, for those of you who call Crosspoint home, you're welcome to give an offering. The offering box is back there at the table near the shed there. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for being a perfect heavenly father. That no matter what our earthly dads were like, that when we look at you, we see perfection, we see compassion, gentleness, love, truth. Thank you for seeking and saving. Thank you for sending your son to rescue us, to redeem us, to set us free from our sin. I pray for those who are still lost. I pray they would return to you today. I pray that they would see and allow the words of Christ here to define who you are, who we are in you. And God, I pray for those of us who do trust in you. I pray that we would reflect you, that we would repent from areas that we are demanding more justice from those around us. When justice has been served, it is, it is finished. The work on the cross a sacrifice is sufficient for all. May your lavish grace continue to change us. May it lead us to a growing joy as the people of God. We, we trust you. We serve you in Jesus' name. Amen.